0: Hello, everyone. I'm David Kern. Welcome to Libromania, a new podcast for the Book Obsessed from the Close Reads Podcast Network. If you love books and all the things that make books great, this podcast is for you. Each week I'll be presenting conversations with authors, designers, publishers, artists, biographers, critics, and scholars about the various things that make books worth celebrating. We'll be talking book design and bookstores, book printing and book collecting. We'll be talking about the lives and problems of famous authors and the science behind our love of books. We'll be chatting with working writers about their process and with scholars about the art of writing biography. Let's just say we'll be diving into a nice, lengthy adventure story with no plans to come up for air anytime soon. This is chapter one in which I'll be chatting about the best books of 2018 with Mr. John Wilson, one of the very best book critics you'll find anywhere. The former editor of Books and Culture, which he ran for 20 plus years, Mr. Wilson currently is a contributing editor at the Englewood Review of Books and a columnist for First Things. There aren't many people who love books more than John and there are even fewer people who are as knowledgeable about them as he is. But then again, I suppose the two go hand in hand. This conversation seemed like the ideal way to kick off a podcast for the book Obsessed. It seemed only natural to talk about some of our favorite books of 2018. So here's my conversation with John Wilson. Hope you enjoy. Be prepared to take notes. You'll want to dive in right away. Thanks for joining me here on Libromania. First of all, thank you for being here. There's nothing more exciting to me than just talking about books with people who love books. So, I'm really excited to chat with you. Likewise. Let me let me just start with this. You how many books how many books in a given year are you mailed to review or to just because someone wants, you know, a little bit of John Wilson's attention?
1: I don't know exactly. I don't get as many as I did when I was the 20 plus years I was editing books and culture, but I still do see a fair number of books. And then as Wendy would tell you, I also buy books. I buy a lot more books than I did during the time that, that I was uh, doing books and culture, but I did have a, they did give me a generous allowance Mm -hmm. for book and magazines and stuff like that. In addition to what, what already came in. So, um, As I'm, if you could see, if this was a a video conversation instead of a, you would see stacks of uh, books all around. In fact, I'm (laughs) right now trying to uh, reduce some of those stacks because our granddaughter, our oldest granddaughter, Teresa, is coming for a few days on Friday. And then two of our uh, children are going to be here soon. And then the third one is coming right after third of the four, one of them can't make it is coming right after uh mm. Christmas. So mm. um yes, lots of books.
0: <laughs> <laughs> is, it, is it painful to have to winnow those, winnow those the stacks down? It's very
1: painful. It is. I mean, I, I don't have to tell you, cause I, it's clear you're a bookish person that any, any bookish person has to do with some of that. Yeah. I've probably done less than, um, uh, than, than many, uh, because I love, uh, I love hanging on to books. You you never know when you're going to want to refer to something. And then also it often turns out, I'm sure you've had this experience that for some reason or another without any intent at all, I will, uh, maybe be looking for one thing and come across something else or hmm. Maybe yeah, I'll have to yeah. move something, and I I come up on a book, and it's sometimes shocking. I mean, this happened to me the other day. It was dealing with Native Americans, and I remembered the book. I remember reading it when it came out, and I I picked it up and saw that it was published in the year two thousand. You know? <laughs> and so that was eighteen years ago, but but I I hadn't looked at it since I first read it, and it just happened to be something that was very timely. So so yes, uh lots of books and um new ones coming in that I love getting the mail. That's one of my yeah. favorite parts <laughs> of the day
0: yeah How many books do you have on your in your home would you would you guess do you have do you have any idea
1: i I don't, but I know that I know it would be somewhere in the thousands, but I don't know exactly how many
0: so I imagine when you move if you have done so recently, probably the, what the number one decision about it is how do I move my transport, my books without harming them? And then also, is there enough space for all of these books to be accurately cataloged in my home?
1: Uh, Well, I, we haven't moved since we moved from Southern California, from Pasadena to Wheaton in 1994. Okay, (laughs) And the, the very thought of moving, uh, is, uh, Nightmare-ish. So <laughs> I if 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 we have to do it, obviously we'll deal with it, but yeah. it's something I'd prefer not to think about.
0: <laughs> yeah. So how many books do you read in a year then? Well, people ask me that
1: all the time or var- variants on that. And I yeah. give pretty much the same answer, which is it all depends on what you mean by uh, reading. Of course, when I was doing books and culture, I was always reading partly with the thought, is this a book that we might want to cover or is it a book that I might want to hang on to because it's on a subject that's likely to generate a good piece and maybe another mm-hmm. book will come out to pair with it and so right. on and so on. And If yeah. you do that for a long enough time, because even before I started Books and Culture, I was doing some other things involved with reference publishing, but one of the things that we published was a review of 200 books in two volumes of 200 200 books that had, I mean, that had come out in the, uh, in the um, previous calendar year, you know, Mm -hmm. and so it was pretty large list and included a lot of fiction and a lot of nonfiction. And so I, I have had my brain working like that for such a long time that even though I'm not doing a magazine now, uh, I'm helping out with a couple of things like the Englewood Review of Books. And, mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm just in that habit that even now when I'm looking at books, I'm thinking about, oh, this would, this would make a good review with so-and-so. And mm, so yeah. a lot of your reading is quite quick. You're just assessing something. And it's really surprising how much you can pick up about a book in just 10 minutes. I mean, that sounds totally ridiculous. I know it sounds like um, you you barely have time to read the blur. But but of course, if it's somebody you know absolutely nothing about, that's a different matter. But Mm. most books are part of some kind of ongoing conversation that you have some familiarity with. And uh, something that isn't conveyed very often in reviews, it's because it's hard to do is that books um every book has a flavor you know it's it's mm. and sometimes that comes out under things like style and so on but but you read just a very little of a book and and you you get some of the flavor of it even though of course you haven't come anywhere close to assimilating the entire uh argument and all the uh facts deployed or all the story told whatever that may be But um, Some books then are a matter of just looking at very briefly. Then there's another level where you're not reading every single word. You're, you're basically skimming, but if you're a practiced reader, you pretty well assimilate the argument of the book. And, uh, that's the way that I read a lot of books. And then there are books that you read, from the first page to the last and if it's a novel that I enjoy I quite often read it again right after I finish it you know because the first reading is a special reading because even if you have some idea of the author and a little you know a little about the book the first reading is the only time you experience that unfolding that full surprise but there's a particular pleasure in if you if you've enjoyed a book uh in going back and, and, uh, and rereading it uh, right then, uh, which is different from the kind of rereading you do when, you know, you read, let's say, uh, oh, I mentioned I, I re- reread a lot of Agatha Christie this year. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a different kind of rereading because you're not reading, again, something that you just finished reading. You're reading something you've read before, sometimes a year or two, sometimes 10 or 15 years before. But but um, all it all adds up to a lot of books. I couldn't tell you how many exactly, (laughs) but but yeah, a lot.
0: How how quickly can you tell whether you will like a book?
1: Oh, usually very soon. It's not necessarily you're not necessarily going to know that it's just a fantastic book. Though sometimes you do know that right right at the start, but. But uh, it's it's quite rare to to read uh, three or four pages for me at least I should say it's quite rare for me to read three or four pages of a book and and think I'm really going to like it and then find that I don't now that doesn't mean there aren't if it's if it's a book that has an argument it doesn't mean there won't be things you disagree with you know I read tons of books by people who see the world quite differently from the way I do the way you do and mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know that's just part of what reading is all about but but um it's quite rare for me at least to to read something and think i'm oh i am really gonna like this and then and then find no uh, uh but sometimes it takes longer to get a sense of of how much you're going to like it or dislike it you know
0: mm. Mm. how often are you surprised by a book in terms of you know maybe I assume you probably have a pretty good grasp of what your own taste is and sort of what books. Oh, I'm are in surprised.
1: I'm surprised not infrequently in that, for instance, the the book that was that I picked for my book of the year, the um, Atlas of a Lost World. It was a book that I had to read more slowly than i than I normally do. I normally I don't think of myself you know, I'm not conscious of like racing or anything like that. Mm-hmm. I just know from talking to people and, and so on, I know that I am a fast reader, but, um, but I had to read this book more slowly, not because it wasn't interesting and not because the writer wasn't skillful. He was extremely skillful, but, but because of the way that within a given chapter and each chapter is pegged to a certain period of time, like maybe 15,000 years ago, you know, or, or, 20,000 or 10,000 years ago, and uh, in each chapter, he switches from what you might call sort of a synthesis of the known history, so it's it's a historical voice, and then he might also throw in some conversation that he had with, let's say, a scholar or an expert of some kind, and then also there are bits of personal narrative where he goes on jaunts, looking for traces of uh, our ancient predecessors in North America and and um, that is done I think deliberately to give you a sense of of what he's what he's telling you all throughout the book that that the very earth we live in is uh, is just layered with this enormously long complicated history which, we continue to try to untangle, but um, uh, it's, it's, it's a very uh, palpable sense of that that you get in reading the book. And so um, that I had no idea that w- it was going to be that special kind of a book. And, and mm-hmm. so in that sense, I was I was surprised and delighted. I knew I'd be interested in the general subject matter, but was only reading it that I really got the sense of what kind of book it is
0: mm. yeah I have your little blurb that you wrote on your best of the year article for first things your best of the year list and you used words like dazzling and dreamlike so and this is a book bu- and the book that you're referring to is uh atlas right. of the world travels in ice age america by craig childs
1: that's right yes and yes.
0: so what's set that up? I mean, you're describing it a little bit, but but what's you as you said, you you named this as your book of the year. Um, right. And, and how did how did how is that book set apart uh, from some of these other books that you listed in your in your list? I mean to name it your book well, of the
1: year. Yeah, sure. It's certainly not I I um, part of the reason I call it favorite books of the year, and some some years in the past I've gone to more uh, effort to make the point that I'm not making any claim that these are the best books, whatever that would mean, the best books of the year. I I don't object to people doing that. I know, you know, it's, it's a, it's an eye catching thing. And I, I look at lots of lists like that. And so it's not something that I'm particularly brooding over, but it's very subjective. And it's the books that also, it doesn't include, uh, you know, whenever that list gets in print, um, I immediately start thinking of you know, I um, there were two books that had to do with rock music and Christians, and uh, one by Greg. Uh, uh, oh shoot,
0: Thornberry. So-
1: yes, yes, on Larry Norman, and the other yep. by, other one by Randall Stevens. And um, I actually have been working on a piece for ages for the Christian Century on those on those two books, trying to be able to say what i think is worth saying and but they're they're such interesting books and um so whenever the list actually appears i always think of other books that easily could have been on it but i i make a point when i do the list of not not giving myself you know two days to think about it and then and then throw some out and put some in because if yeah. i did that i would just be dithering And in fact, this list was way too long, you know, (laughs) as I mentioned in introducing it. I mean, it was really way too long, but I just, I couldn't, I didn't want to get into the, as I said, a kind of a dithering process. So it was just the book that when I thought back about the books that I was reading and it was just, it doesn't take me very long. You know, I just think about, think about the books that I've read in the year and what comes to mind most vividly. And, um, I'm very interested in, um, I mentioned that I, I was reading a lot of books, rereading a lot of books, uh, having to do with Native Americans. And it's something that I'm interested in since I was a kid. Hmm. Um, so that's part of the reason this book caught my eye. But I'm also very interested in uh, in the reality of time and uh, um, like like the novel uh, Sleep of Memory by Patrick Modiano. The French
0: yeah, that's writer, what I was going to ask you about.
1: that. It was a completely different kind of book uh, from uh, Craig Child's book, but but they both um, are are quite wonderful to me in in getting at something of, of our experience of time. Uh, so for someone else, they may, they might read Child's book. I I certainly hope that at least a few people will pick it up who might not have read it and and find that it's really wonderful. But you know, for someone else, that that might not be as much in a, of an attraction, and, and that's fine. But, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I I would say that it has to do with, uh, we were talking about books have flavors. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's not just about whether you agree with the book or uh, whether you're impressed with the writer's uh, skill and intelligence and, and so on. It goes beyond that to something that's like a taste, you know. Like a very vivid taste, um, that's that's a crucial part of it.
0: Hmm. Does so? If you're talking about this concept of taste when you're reading books and thinking about them as, as a critic it calls to mind the concept of like a a really, really good meal, which would have, you know, there'd be multiple courses and multiple layers and multiple flavors. Um, Uh, Does that (laughs) apply to books as well? I mean, am I taking the metaphor further than you sort of mean to, but, or or would you say that a great book does have that, that way of melding flavors and offering multiple courses?
1: No, I mean, I would say, I would, I would say it's more like, I I don't want to stretch it too far, but the, Hmm. It's not so much the book itself, though books certainly, um, many great books cover quite a, a range and it certainly can be true that in in one sense a, a book doesn't just have a flavor, it, it has different flavors, but, mm-hmm. but in the sense that I'm thinking of it, there's there's something, uh, and, and it's simply an analogy, uh, but I think it's a good analogy to taste that um, you, you bite into, uh, let's say a tangerine or you take a sip of tea or whatever the case may be. And there's a, um, a particular like inscape as, as Hopkins used -hmm. to say, each thing has its own Mm inscape and, uh, you sense that. And so I would say that among the books that I, I was, uh, listing um as my favorites for the year i would say that for me each one of them has has that quality of a certain uh, vividness of it that is like a taste um mm. and that they're they're quite different from one another you know the mm. um the uh the books um are not just different in subject matter but but they're different in their uh in their flavor as well mm.
0: Well, well, let me ask you, uh, we don't have too much time left, so I want to ask you about a couple of these. You've mentioned your book of the year, which was Alice of the World uh, by Craig Childs, and you've mentioned Patrick Modiano's uh, Sleep of Memory, which you mentioned was published in, two th- in France in 2017 and is now available in an English translation. Right. And you mentioned in your blurb, or your little comment about it, that it, you've read it three times already. What brought you back to it so many times?
1: Well, I mentioned when I was writing about it that a friend of mine who doesn't care... Moriano said, "All of his books are the same," (laughs) (laughs) and and um, I was conceding that in some ways, uh, if not all, many of them are quite similar. But that if you like what he's doing, that's that's not a a defect. And uh, if if you describe one of his books to someone, they might easily get a wrong impression that they might. If you say, "Well, usually not a lot happens." Uh, and their mind would immediately go to a certain kind of fiction that often is described as avant-garde and uh, that that puts a special emphasis on, uh, you might say, the linguistic reality as opposed to pointing to the world and, and the words themselves. No words can, of course, be transparent, but Modiano isn't that kind of writer at all. It's not. Nothing uh, the amount that actually happens in a clear way in, in a novel by him compared to what happens in in a let's say, a typical novel is is very small. And moreover, the books are very short, typically. and, um, and they're very elusive. A lot of them have to do with memory, and uh, he's going back to different strata of time. He's recalling something that happened at a certain time. And then he jumps to something at another time. And it's often not exactly clear, even by the end of the book, Hmm. precisely what happened. And, um, and as I say, if, if someone just heard a description like that, if if someone (laughs) just told me that and I had never read him, I, I might say, nah, probably not my cup of tea. Sounds French. um, You know, um, it's, I find his books, um, well, I think I use the word seductive. and mm-hmm. um, it, it's very interesting. They are very short, um, sort of like reading one of the Maigret novels, you know, which I love. They're very short, and it's it's fascinating after you've read it once to go back and try to get a sense of um, how it's put together, and uh, because you don't do do that when you're reading it the first time. You're, you're sort of caught up, and uh, John Gardner had that wonderful phrase, a vivid, continuous dream. You know, you're, you're sort of caught up in that when you're reading it the first time, and y- you experience that to some extent on a second reading, but but at the same time, y- you have some sense of where you're going to end up, you know, and how you're mm-hmm. going to get there, and, um, and y- you then can begin to think about, you might say how it's, how it's made, how it's put together. Hmm. Hmm.
0: Okay. Well, I would love to talk to you about that book at length, but, I, and I have it on my, I actually put that on my Christmas, wish list, So maybe I'll get that and we can actually do that. Well,
1: be sure to tell me what you think of it. I mean, if you don't, don't like know. it, no blame, of course, <laughs> but you know, I, I'd, I'd love to hear what you think of it.
0: I, absolutely. I'd love to chat about it. Um, I do want to ask you about a couple other books. If you have just a couple of minutes, sure. maybe, maybe on each of these. Okay. So many of our, many of my listeners are, um, are teachers. So I want to ask you about a book called the teacher diaries. Uh, it was with the subtitle, oh, I love uh, that book. Diaries, Romeo and Juliet. This is by Callie. Uh, is that fan Callie Fane? Um, yeah. Tell Callie, me about that book. Yeah. Callie.
1: Well, um, as I said, uh, part of the reason I enjoyed it so much is that the news we hear from people who are teachers, both, People we're personally acquainted with, but also what we read and articles and the paper and so on and so on, it tends to be very um, discouraging. And and I know myself a lot of teachers at at different levels. You know, some of them are elementary school, some of them are high school, some of them are college professors. Some of them mainly teach in grad school. But I know a lot who are discouraged. And so um, it was just wonderful to read. This um, short, very fresh book that takes Shakespeare and one of his plays that's been written about endlessly and adapted endlessly. You might say, but, you know, somebody who's really, really um, sophisticated might sort of wave their hand and say, oh, you know, what what can be said about this? But um, to feel um, the writer's zest. For her students, because she she talks about what works in the um, in the class and how her students respond to it, and so it, it's it would be wonderful to read, I think, for teachers. But also, uh, it says interesting things about Shakespeare, and it just in a very fresh way that's not overly encumbered. It's not that she hasn't read any uh, scholarship, but but it's not overly encumbered by uh, scholarly argument and uh it's the kind of book that you can read easily in a um in an evening if you, if you want to and so i just found it delightful she's doing a similar book uh on um
0: the hobbit oh okay i may have to get her on the podcast sometime
1: you should you should we've never uh met in in uh person but um we have corresponded a little bit, and she wrote one or two pieces uh, for me. And um, she's, uh, among other things, uh, it sounds formidable, a literacy specialist, but um, she, uh, she just loves, one thing that's very clear is that she loves teaching, and mm. um, that comes through. It's kind of contagious in, mm. in, uh, in this book.
0: Hmm. i do feel like that's can be you know even if you love teaching it's sort of a rare thing to actually make that a contagious thing in writing it's not always easy to translate why you love it into your words in any other way than saying that i love it but when you can do it and you can actually embody that that's a rare thing let's talk about alan jacobs yes he you you mentioned that he's a friend of yours he has a new book out or uh, called the year of our lord 1943 christian humanism in an age of crisis i always enjoy when alan jacobs uh, releases a new book. So tell me about why this book made your list.
1: Well, uh, it's a fascinating uh, book, but it's also interesting to me because as I said, in my little comments about it, when I put the list together, I would never have thought of combining the five writers he <laughs> treats uh, in, in the way that he does. And I, I even this frame, this, you know, Christian, humanism and the sense that they had that, uh, something was happening in, uh, Western, uh, European civilization that was heading towards, uh, disaster. And that was embodied in, in a particular way. in during world war two, but it was something that in their minds and they were quite different figures had, had a considerable, uh, history behind it and how they, um, had a kind of dream of in different ways, very different ways of, of trying to restore a, uh, a Christian, uh, culture. And I, you know, I, we could, we would have to s- spend an hour talking about <laughs> what that might mean. And it's not, it's not an idea that, that, um, seems, uh, terribly plausible to me. And in fact, Alan concludes that even though they did wonderful work and, and went on to do more after the period that he's describing, uh, that um, because of what he uh, he associates, it's a, it's a kind of shorthand, uh, but uh, technique or technology that, that it had become the, the dominant force uh, in our society, and that was already an accomplished fact by the time that they were that they were writing so i don't know if i've done much to to convey the uh the argument uh there's a wonderful passage where he uh talks about w h auden's uh poem uh, new year letter
0: mm-hmm.
1: See well, if right, I, can I guess
0: find we it. we should clarify while you're looking that this is the uh the five figures, uh the five subjects of the book are C.S. Lewis, Auden, vale Elliot, and uh um who's the Jack face? Doc yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's right. And um if anyone uh um has the book or is or is considering it and browsing and if you read Starts on uh, page 65 and it goes to um, page 68. And he's talking about Auden's great poem uh, written in 1940 called New Year Letter, and uh, um, he quotes from it. More even than in Europe, here the choice of patterns here being America, where Auden had uh, come from from England. More even than in Europe, here the choice of patterns is made clear which the machine imposes what is possible and what is not to what conditions we must bow in building the just city now. And then just after that, uh, Alan quotes another passage from the same poem that the machine has now destroyed the local customs. We enjoyed replaced bonds of blood and nation by personal confederation to judge our means and plan our end. So that is Mm. of course, there's a lot more to the book, but but in a nutshell, um, that gives much of the argument uh, of the book.
0: Hmm. Okay, a couple more. A.E. Stallings-like, a book of poetry. Yes. Um, yeah. Stallings, if I'm not mistaken, is also known as a classicist, is she not?
1: Yes, and she's uh, done some translations from the classics, yes.
0: Does that show up for... F- in in her poetry do you think i mean do you do you send is that part of the flavor of this book so to speak um
1: well it shows up in various ways it it shows up partly because being saturated in in that literature uh has uh permanently shaped her imagination and and of course there will be references now and then to to uh direct direct references but but i also think that because she has been engaged in uh, in translating and uh, in the very, very difficult uh, uh, effort to find the right word uh, to take mm. a poem from the ancient world and and try to make it uh, readable in the in English in the here in the here and now. I think that something of the um, spareness, of her poetry uh her books tend to be relatively short and i think that that probably isn't unrelated to her to her experience as a as a translator and her uh long acquaintance with these texts which of course are the ones that have survived there were a lot more that that have been lost along the centuries and uh so this winnowing has taken place and i think that uh that uh has affected the way that she writes herself as a poet.
0: Hmm. Okay, every time you start talking about these books, I have all kinds of questions, but this is not the podcast for that kind of conversation. (laughs)
1: Let me just, well, yes, (laughs) I I apologize for such truncated, I mean, of course, we were talking earlier about getting the flavor, and you know, you can open this new book of hers almost any place in in the book, and and read a couple of poems and and you'll know whether you want to um whether you want to read more so uh the the first-hand experience with the text is <laughs> is is far superior but um yeah i i think she's a um exceptionally uh interesting um poet and uh a new book by her is is always a, uh, for me, an event.
0: Hmm. Um, well, i I'm, I'm pretty sure that the next, this last person I'm going to ask you about is, uh, is also an event when he comes out with a book every six weeks as he does. And that is Michael Connolly who, who released um, dark sacred night. And obviously um, it's not true that he comes out with a book every six weeks, but uh, he, he has written quite a few, um, quite a few novels about the, uh, the detective Harry Bosch. There's also an H I think it's an HBO series, right? Or, no,
1: no, it's an Amazon, Amazon. series, yeah. and it's excellent. It's it's um, I I Wendy and I have uh, enjoyed it, and uh, it helps a lot that Connolly himself has been involved in making the series. So,
0: mm. well, I think among people who love crime fiction and spy novels and all that sort of thing, there is sometimes. Uh, at least among some people, the sense that the golden age of those sorts of books has sort of passed us by, and that a lot of the stuff we get now is just kind of is uh, lesser than, so to speak. But you're you're quite a champion uh, for Connolly, and you know you've you've mentioned you've recommended several of his books to me, and um, I picked up a few of them and enjoyed them. And so I'm curious, um, what is it about Connolly in particular that you think is is worth reading and makes him a worthy sort of successor to some of the golden age of Crime fiction writers, well, so to speak.
1: One thing about one thing about Connolly is that um, uh, there, he tells a wonderful story of of uh, going away to college in Florida and uh, preparing to be an engineer. His father was a builder, and he worked a little bit in the summers with his father's work. And the idea was that Connolly would uh, get a engineering background and then he he would be able to work with his dad um and uh he went to college and um he found that uh, he just didn't that wasn't what he really wanted to do the most he wanted to um he wanted to write <laughs> sure. and he wanted he specifically wanted to write crime fiction and uh he came and uh told his parents that and uh his father did not just uh throw up his arms and say, Oh, you know, what an idiotic what an idiotic idea that is. He said um you're you're gonna need something to fall back on. So um you you, you should plan on that. And so Connolly decided to become uh, a a journalist mm. and he graduated from college and got a job in Florida as a newspaper reporter. And of course, the newspaper business was a lot different then and, and uh, flourishing, actually. And he he eventually came and worked for the L.A. Times. And so he, he put in some years as a journalist and he worked on the crime beat for quite a while. And he learned... Um, the nuts and bolts of, uh, crime in a way that, uh, someone who whose experience of it is strictly literary doesn't have. And at the same time, he was right from the beginning, starting from when he was still quite, you know, a young, a young man. He, he loved reading Raymond Chandler and Ross McDonald and some of the other,
0: um, great classics.
1: Yeah. And so, um, He combines, on the one hand, uh, a a passion for and a knowledge of that tradition. And on the other hand, this uh, nuts and bolts knowledge, including cultivating relationships with cops over the years, who he often will acknowledge in his books. Um, So as a writer, you know, sentence by sentence, um, and he, I'm sure... Uh, would be well aware of this himself, but he's not he's not a crafter of sentences the way that uh let's say Chandler or Ross McDonald were. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh his writing is always grounded in uh reality, which you can't say <laughs> of some <laughs> crime Sorry. fiction. And he's got a there's a deep um there's a deep moral grounding as well. Um, so that I would say, um, that's, that's another one of his most, um, appealing qualities as a, as a novelist. And he's also just a really hard worker, (laughs) you know, I mean, he, he, uh, he hasn't rested on his laurels, you know, he keeps pushing himself and, and, uh, there's a there's a there's a burning ambition there too that hasn't uh become extinguished yet so all those together have made him a a really good writer but mm-hmm. i mean for people who are interested in trying crime fiction uh you know there, i don't think there's ever been a better time for for crime i mean there are tons of younger writers and uh connolly would be now you know it seems like not that long ago he was breaking in now he's part of the old guard you know Hmm. so where would you um,
0: go ahead where where would you suggest people if we should people just jump in with dark sacred night or maybe the late show or would you suggest they go back and start with the black echo which is the that's the first bosch book right am i remembering that correctly
1: what i would what i would say is um read uh dark sacred night and uh which i think is terrific and um if you really like it then yes, go back to the first book. And uh, it, because the, the way that the characters evolve over time uh, preeminently Harry Bosch, but others as well um, uh, is, is part of what makes the um, the book so satisfying and Mm -hmm. you really can't get that if you just hop around and, you know, Mm -hmm. read a book from the middle and then read another real recent one. And, but you know, to each his own. And, um, <laughs> yeah. but, uh, yeah, what I would urge is do exactly as you said, read the read this newest one. And if you, you know, you say, I was okay, but I don't think I want to go back and read 25 or 30 more. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> yeah. that, that's, that's fine. But, but, uh, if you really like it, then go back to the beginning.
0: Well, I'd love to talk to you about the two books about Vikings that you mentioned, but we'll just tell people that they should look at the list to look at those. So here's my last question for you since I know you got to go. Okay. Is there, is there a book that you believe, you know, a book from your list that should have received more attention than it got, that you wish that you would like to champion and hope that way more people will read than it seems like have already done so?
1: Uh, I think I'd mention the novel uh, Heads of the Colored People. Mm. Um, which it's not a novel a collection of stories uh hmm. um which it, it has not been I I mentioned it hasn't been totally ignored I've seen I've seen a couple good reviews of it the the Chicago Tribune since she teaches in Chicago did um a nice uh profile of her so it's not like it's been completely ignored but on the other hand I haven't seen near as much coverage of it as I've seen by a number of other books that in my mind are not as uh, uh that don't stand out as much of course you know that's partly a matter of taste but but uh um it is a uh, very unusual in that it's it's satiric and also very humane at the same time mm-hmm. and um you don't often find that that combination you know uh and maybe that's part of the why it hasn't been uh, covered quite as much as it, because it's not, there's a, there's a biting, uh, there's some biting satire in it. uh, But at the same time, I wouldn't describe it as an angry, I wouldn't describe it as an angry book at all. I would say it's, it's very perceptive, very fresh. I think I mentioned in my little entry for it, that the, the, the author describes herself as a black nerd and, and um uh, she has a wonderful sense of humor. Uh and, and, and again, as I say, it just a, a humane quality that goes with this uh this satiric uh wit. Hmm.
0: And um so this is by I'm just trying to make sure I have it right. Uh Naf- Nafissa Thompson Spires, is that right? That's right.
1: Yeah.
0: And for all our listeners, I'll make sure that I post these books and some links to them uh, in the show notes for this. And then I hope people will go look up your your favorite books of 2018, the full article over at First Things. And then also you have a coming attractions list for 2019 over at First Things, which you posted back in November. We don't have time to talk about that now but there are some books there's there's more crime fiction referenced in there and book about Edward Lear and a number of other things so if people are interested in that they should head over to first things and check that out i kept you a little bit longer than i promised so i apologize for that but thank you so much for joining oh it was a
1: very enjoyable conversation david and and uh don't worry about the time i probably could have been much more uh concise in some of my answers, but talking about books is a pleasure. And so thank <laughs> I mean, you for the chance.
0: Of course. Thank you. And, and, uh, thank you for being here. And again, I, I hope people will go check out all your lists and, you know, buy at least one copy of every book and try them all. <laughs> well,
1: I, I, I don't know about that, but I, if a reader finds even one book that just sounds, um, like his or her cup of tea, I will, I will be delighted.
0: That was John Wilson from the Englewood review of books and first things. Thanks to John for joining me. Don't forget to be on the lookout for his work in the Englewood Review of Books at EnglewoodReview.com and at FirstThings.com. Each of the books he mentioned are listed in the show notes, so be sure to check those out and support the authors he talked about. For John's complete Best of 2018 list, head over to FirstThings.com. The link is in the description of this episode. And thanks to you for listening. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review this show. I'll be back next week with another conversation. Thanks for listening and happy reading.